Well, good morning, Harvest. Good to, good to see you all. My name is Steve Winstead, and for the past seven plus years, I've had the joy and privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at Harvest. And uh, this morning, we are in our Advent series. And if you're like me, I absolutely love Advent season. I know for many, um, there's a lot of different emotions. Some have lost loved ones and missed loved ones, and there's those emotions. But it's a unique time of year. And when we talk about Advent, it may not be a word uh, some of you use as much, but basically we're talking about the anticipation of Christmas. Christmas is coming, and we're waiting. It's the four weeks before Christmas where we, four Sundays before Christmas, where we're anticipating God Almighty. He's about to enter the world, take on flesh to redeem humanity, all who will believe. And it's a glorious, magnificent thing that we get to celebrate. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at a passage that is quite familiar to those who have been in the church any length of time. And actually, even if you maybe are new to the church or just visiting day, there's a chance that you too have heard the passage that we're looking at today. It's uh, the most important birth announcement ever made, and we want to look at that birth announcement and who it went to, followed by the most powerful, the most magnificent short song that anyone has ever sang that we get to look at today. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles. We're in Luke chapter 2, will be verses 8 through 14. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. And in that same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Well, this is a passage of scripture that I absolutely love spending time in. And I'm so thankful that each year I get moved back to it around this time of year to re-examine and look at it. You see, when I read this passage sights and sounds and smells come to mind. This, this passage goes deep as I see the land of the Bible. Now, if you spent any time with me, uh, uh, you know that one of my personal passions is, is the land of the Bible, where the scriptures took place. I went there for the first time in 2000, and, and ever since then, it's been a passion of mine just seeing scripture in the land. And seeing how God has used that unique place. Now I tell people all the time, 
No one has to go to the land of the Bible to be able to read Scripture for all that God intends. You can fully do that without going. But when I open it up, there's something special that I see and smell and taste and feel. And, and I hope a little bit this morning that we can be brought into some of that as we walk through this passage. Well, one of the exercises I always do in preparing teams to go is I'll ask them, I'll say, hey, would you just give me words that describe God? And I'll, I'll write them on a board. And people give me words like, God is holy. God is good. He's just. He's righteous. He's pure. He's patient. He's kind. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. And I look at those words and say, all of them true. Glorious. They give us a picture of God. But in the Hebrew mind, in the Old Testament, God gives us a little bit different way of seeing God. Not better, just, just sort of different. And by that I mean, uh, in Genesis chapter 15, God is described as a shield. Now we can visualize a shield. A shield is, you, you, when you're in battle, when the enemies come in, you put up a shield and it protects you against the enemy. God's described as a strong tower as living water, as a keeper, as shade. Have you ever been out in a hot, arid area where there's, we don't have AC, you don't have any of that, and you see a shade tree? How sweet that is. A consuming fire, judge, mighty warrior, 63 times he's listed as father. A fortress, a horn. And in all of these things I've, I've just described, that in the Old Testament, how they describe God, I could say to my children, hey, would you draw me a picture of a horn, of a strong tower, of a shield? And they could do that. But when I say, draw me a picture of God as holy, well, that's true. But God in the Old Testament gives us pictures and images of his character and who he is that we can relate to. And one of my favorite images of who God is, is given in that most famous psalm, Psalm 23. The Lord, the, the, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What a beautiful picture of God as a shepherd. And, and last week, Jamie talked about God is, or, or talked about light and darkness, these biblical themes. You see, the Bible has a big meta story. That man has fallen and sinned against a holy God and God is in the process of redeeming and restoring and saving broken sinful man. But within that story, we get shadows of coming Messiah, types of coming Messiah, pictures that God uses to help us connect and relate to who he is. And one of the, the ones that I love and that is all over the Bible is the picture of shepherds and sheep. You know, the, the very first man, Adam, God placed him in a garden. Everything's perfect, and Adam was, working, was naming the animals and taking care of them. He took the role of a shepherd. Yet in Genesis chapter 3, we see that perfect environment didn't last very long. Adam and Eve are tempted, eat of the forbidden fruit, rebel against God, and sin enters the world and everything. All of creation feels it. 
There's nothing that doesn't feel the impact of sin. God gives us sevenfold curse in Genesis chapter 3 where the, the ground, the world, our bodies, everything feels the result. You know, this year has been a tough year. But it's just more evidence that this world is not how God intended it. The fall has occurred. That's evidence as the world aches and groans. We see the world is broken. Come, Jesus, come quickly. We long for you to come and fix this broken, fallen world. And in the midst of a curse, God in his goodness and in his grace, he gives a picture. Genesis 3.15, it's called the first gospel. He tells the serpent that the seed of woman will crush his head. And from that point forward, Adam and Eve are thinking, there's a seed, a baby's coming, who's going to save this, fix this, make right what has been broken. And God had told Adam and Eve when they sinned, they would die. And, and that death was intended to be an immediate death, that Adam and Eve deserved to die. Right then, they rebelled against God's death, yet God in his grace and his mercy and goodness took Adam and Eve to an animal and in Genesis 3, 21, they sacrifice an animal and then they wear the animal skins as a reminder that our sin deserves death. And we're wearing these animal skins and they're bloody and they're nasty as a reminder that sin always requires a blood sacrifice. Well, Eve gives birth to her first son and she names him Cain and she's probably thinking, he's the one who's going to make this right. This whole broken thing, he's going he's to be the one to fix it. And Cain, in his pride and in his arrogance, offers God a sacrifice of his grain. His little brother Abel worked the flocks. His little brother Abel was a shepherd. But he won't go to his little brother and say, Hey, I need to offer God a blood sacrifice for my sin. Instead, he offers God a sacrifice any way he wants to. He doesn't give God his best. He won't humble himself before God. God gives him a warning, and Cain doesn't repent. Instead, his sin grows. He's not the Savior. He's not the one who's going to fix this. In fact, he kills his little brother. The first murder in the Bible, the first death in the Bible, is of a shepherd. A shepherd named Abel dies. Well, if you were to ask a Jewish person, who are the major figures of the Old Testament? Abraham, the father of the nation. Abraham. He was living well in Ur the Chaldees, and God calls him and lowers him to create a nation that will have a heart toward God. But in order to shape Abraham's heart, God makes him a shepherd. You see, God's seminary for people in the Old Testament his way of shaping people in the Old Testament is by having them go serve as a shepherd. There's no one in our Old Testament that God doesn't, that, that is used in a significant way that didn't spend time as a shepherd. It was the family business that God had them do. I was wondering this week if seminaries should maybe send all prospective pastors to go be a shepherd for a season to learn that work. Because that's what God calls pastors to be under shepherds. Well, after, after Abraham, we see Moses, another huge figure in the Old Testament, the giver of the law, the deliverer of God's people, yet born a Hebrew, 
raised in the house of Pharaoh for 40 years. For 40 years, he has everything he can imagine. He's in the most powerful household on earth. Yet he thinks that he's the Savior. He sees a Hebrew, the group of people he comes from, his ethnicity, and he sees the Egyptians, the people he lives with, fighting with each other, and he decides to settle it himself, and he kills a man. And in doing so, he runs and he hides. And for 40 years, at age 40, Moses goes and serves as a shepherd for 40 years. You see, being a, a shepherd, for, for our understanding, it's like a first job. You know, uh, when you get a first job, you're learning hard work, show up on time, do things that you don't want to do because it's going to be blessing on the other side. Sometimes you just got to do it, and you've got to endure, and you've got to be able to persevere in difficult things. Those first jobs, it's like, just keep on going, keep doing it. That was what a shepherd was. It was typically your first job. It was a job of usually young men, teenage boys would be shepherds. Rarely, you wouldn't find a 40-year-old man as a shepherd. If you did, you would wonder... What went wrong? Why is he still working that first job? But God takes Moses and humbles him. He takes Abraham and humbles him by having them go and work with stupid sheep as a shepherd. And then David. God finds this young boy out in the fields writing songs of praise to God. Israel had asked for a king, and he gave them a king they wanted in Saul. He looked the part, but he was a complete failure and had no heart for God. And God says, I'm picking the king this time. I'm going to give you a king after my own heart. And where does a king after my own heart come from? He's a shepherd out working the fields. And God takes this shepherd boy and elevates him to the highest position in the land. See, God's school of greatness, of shaping people, the job he uses is that of a shepherd. So it should come as no surprise to us that immediately after Jesus' birth, the birth announcement, who would it go to? Who would be invited to come and see this baby, this Savior that's been born? But shepherds. And we see in verse Eight, the first verse I read today, that they were out keeping watch over their flocks by night. You see, being a shepherd is a 24-7 job. Sheep, if you stop watching them, they're going to roam. They're going to go off. You've got to keep your eye on them and watch them. And the most difficult time, the most important time of watching sheep is at night. Because if a wolf, if a rabid animal is going to come and attack your sheep, he's going to do it at night, and you've got to be ready and watching. So these shepherds, they are up watching, protecting their sheep. And it said, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory, the, the, the magnificent, indescribable glory of God shone around them. I don't know what that's like. I know it's something that words can't describe. God's glory appearing. And when God's glory appeared, their response was fear. Which is very natural. To have fear. When you see God's glory, you, when we see how magnificent and how wonderful God is, we look and we go, sinful man am I. I fall so short of God's glory. I live for 
my glory. I seek my own ease. I, se- I seek glory for myself more than I seek glory for God. And, and we fall on our knees and we repent and turn from God and it moves us toward faith. Fear moves us to trust in God. Or fear moves us to staring at this earth a little bit more. Going, maybe this earth can deliver. Maybe if I just get everything in order. Maybe if I just get everything secure. Maybe if I just have a little more, do a little more, build a little more down here. Then I'll have peace and not have fear. But the thing is, this earth will never deliver. It'll keep coming back empty, void, bankrupt. It's only in living for God's glory that we begin to taste and experience the richness and the fullness of walking with him. As long as we're living for this down here, we're going to keep tasting that same result. Empty. Gave me a kick for a little bit. I enjoyed it for a moment. But ultimately, it comes back the same. And these shepherds, they're afraid. And the angel of the Lord says, Fear not. God knows where we are. When we're afraid, he knows it. And he pulls us. He says, come back to me. You're safe with me. And he says, fear not, for behold. Here's what God wants these shepherds to take hold of. Behold. For I bring you good news of great joy. You see, that good news of great joy is magnificent when we understand the bad news that we have sinned against God. Your good works your religious practices, your coming to church, all your efforts, insufficient. They can't save you. The good news of great joy is that there's a Savior who's coming to do it. Good news of great joy, and he says, good news of great joy, that will be for all the people. Not just for the Israelites, not just for some people, for all people. Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for the entirety of the world, and it's declared right here, God has always had the nations on his heart. And here at the birth of Jesus, he says, it's good news of great joy for all the people. You see, we're headed toward a day. We're headed home. This world is not our home. Don't begin to get too, try to get too comfortable here, because you can't. This year's reminded us again of that. You can't get real comfortable here. You try to get everything fixed here and all your ducks in a row here, it's not going to work. No, your home is in heaven. That's where we're headed. That's where we're going. That's our home. And when we get there, Revelation tells us there's a time coming when every tribe, tongue, nation, and people will gather at the throne and worship God Almighty. That's what we long for. That's what we look forward to. All the peoples of all times worshiping God. And it's not going to be people that look just like you, think just like you, come from the same socioeconomic, same nation, same background. No, it's going to be all peoples and it's going to be glorious. See, that's why God pulls all his people to have a heart for the nations. Now, it looks different. God's leading us in that may look different for each of us, but he calls us to that because there's a great joy in being involved in all the nations that God is bringing to himself. And he says, this is good news of great joy for all people. For here's what it is. For unto you is born this day. Immediately, they get this announcement. This day has been born in the city of David. 
a Savior. The city of David, hearkening back to the glorious shepherd king in his city, the man after God's own heart, in his city is born the Savior. King David, the new king, has been born in the same city. The great, 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 great grandson of King David has been born. He's a Savior. This town, Bethlehem, means house of bread. Jesus says that he's the bread of life. And here in this town, they raised sheep. Shepherds lived and in this town here. And he gives these shepherds a sign. Listen, here's the sign. How are you going to know you've got the right place? This will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. A manger. It's a feeding trough. It's where animals go to eat. These shepherds had been in mangers plenty of times because they worked with animals. These shepherds were lowly. In fact, if they gave the tes- a testimony, you had to have two shepherds equal one person. And these shepherds, whose testimony wouldn't be accepted by many people, are the first to come and witness his baby Jesus being born. And they come and see him, and they come and see him amongst the animals, sleeping where the animals eat. And it's significant that God calls these first men, these first shepherds to come. I, um, I remember being in Bethlehem years ago. I had a team there. And we were out on the outskirts of Bethlehem. And we, we walked, we were at this place called the Rhodium, which is like a, a, a mountainous hill. And we walked down it, and I look out, and we can see all the land. You, it's one of those places where you can just see miles. And I just paused the group, and I said, hey, listen. Somewhere where you can see right now, King David wrote these words. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And as as I look down the hill, uh, we see, we didn't see her at first, but we see this woman and this young man with sheep. I think we might have a picture of him. You see that, that woman down there, and she's at the bottom of the hill where we were standing, and I see these sheep, and these sheep all start walking up toward us. So we stopped and we took some pictures of them. You can see an up close one here of these sheep. And my imagery of sheep has typically been white, fluffy sheep that my kids have as a, as a stuffed animal painted on some kids' walls. You know, they're cute, they're harmless, they're, they're pretty. You look at these sheep and they're dirty. They're nasty. They smell. They, they were stupid. They were walking right into us, just walking up there. I'm like, what? what? It, it was a unique thing. Yet in Scripture, we're compared to the sheep. Sheep are one of the, the least intelligent animals on earth. I don't know how they figure that out, but I guess when you're that... Dumb people can figure it out. <laughs> sheep also are one of the few animals that have no natural defenses. What do I mean by that? Well, most animals, they have claws. They can claw you. Or they have powerful jaws and sharp teeth and they can bite you. Or they can run really fast and get away from you. Sheep are slow. They have dull teeth, weak jaws, and they don't have claws. Most animals, if it's a fight between you and them, I'm betting on the animal. But a sheep... I'll take about everybody in this room. Sheep have no natural defenses. Their only defense is a good shepherd. You see, sheep are animals 
the one thing they do well is follow. Sheep are good at following. And they'll follow whoever the lead sheep is. But the lead sheep they're following doesn't know much more than them. In fact, in Turkey around 2006, you can Google this, there was a pack of sheep, a few thousand. The lead sheep walked off a cliff and everybody else followed. Several hundred of them died. And then after there's a few on the ground, I think they had some cushion to land on, so some survived. But these animals, they're stupid, they follow. They don't have any defenses. They can't see what the good shepherd sees. They need a good shepherd to guide them, to lead them, to direct them, to protect them with his shepherd's staff. That's what Jesus is. He's the good shepherd. You see, we will follow, even the person who thinks that they're the most individualistic, they, they move to a different beat or whatever it is, they're still following someone. All human nature in our flesh, we follow. We look to our neighbors. What do they have? What are they doing? How can I find uh, joy and peace in what they're doing? And even at Christmas time, we can find ourselves doing that. Was it a good Christmas? Yeah, my children and their kids got to come be with us this year. Last year, they were the in-laws, but this Christmas was good because they were here. Was it a good Christmas? Yeah, nobody, nobody got in an argument. Everybody got along. Was it a good Christmas? Yeah, I got the gifts I wanted, not hoped for. Was it a good Christmas? Yeah, I got some extra time off from work. That's how the world, that's the only way the world can assess Christmas season. No, we look and we go, was it a good Christmas? Yeah, I remembered. I was brought back to the fact that God came to save and redeem. I remembered that the good shepherd became a sheep and was born like a sheep. I remember that God Almighty took on flesh and came and lived a life I couldn't live to reconcile me. And when I live in light of that, there's joy no matter what the season is, no matter what's going on in this world. I can have joy because my joy is not based on this place. My joy is based on that place where I'm going and based on my Savior. That's where we find our hope. It's in the good news of Jesus Christ. And you see these shepherds that were working in Bethlehem, they were raising sheep for a specific purpose. The Sadducees, they were a priestly group at the temple. And what you would do is each year you would come and offer a sacrifice of a sheep, a blood sacrifice for your sins. It would cover your sins for another year. The Sadducees said the sheep had to come from a certain radius of the temple. And Bethlehem, being only five miles from Jerusalem, was within that radius. And the Sadducees owned all the fields of Bethlehem. So the sheep that were being raised... They were being raised for a specific purpose, the slaughter, to die, to appease the sin of a holy God. And these shepherds show up and find a sheep, a baby, God Almighty, the good shepherd who's become a human, who's become a sheep. He's going to die like a sheep and he's going to put them out of business. They're not needed anymore. The sacrificial system is done because there's one who's come and is a sacrifice sufficient for all the world. Sufficient for all time. You don't have to continually come back. And they come and see this baby there in a manger. I've often wondered what, um, what happened to these shepherds. They're probably teenage boys. They grew up, hear about Jesus going and teaching. 
over to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and watch him riding into town and go, there. we saw him as a baby. Here he is, the Savior coming to rescue us. And that song, the angels sang, glory to God in the highest, glory to God in the highest. You see, the temptation, we are always being pulled to live in for our glory. But it's only as we live for God's glory that we find fulfillment and the joy and the intimacy that God has for us. And he says, and on earth, on earth, here's what you get. You get peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. Now, since Jesus was born, there's been violent, bloody war every single year. He didn't come to bring no war peace. He'll come back and do that. But this first time he came to bring peace between us and God, between those with whom he is pleased. Whom is, who is God pleased with? Those who trust. Those who say, my efforts aren't enough. God, I, I throw myself at your mercy. Save me. And God says, I'll save you. I'll cover you with the blood of my son and you'll be in him and you'll be secure. You see, the word of God is powerful. When I stand before you, uh, there's little confidence in, in my ability to say anything of any significance. But God's word, oh, it'll do the work with which God sends it. And you can rest and trust in that. I was reminded of that this week. I was in a uh, call with the uh, the elders in Ethiopia, I think most of you, uh, or a lot of you know that my family is moving to Ethiopia. We actually move one month from today. Today is December 6th, we move January 6th, so it's, it's coming. And I was in a, a meeting with the elders, and one of them shared a devo. And at the end of it, he told a story that just happened like within the past month and a half. And he said, he was overworking with a, with a, a group of, of Muslims, and this one man, he had been the leading Muslim teacher in the community. And he came to Christ. They asked him, will you continue teaching us because you know more than anybody else? We still want you to be our teacher. So he continued teaching him. He said, hey, I'm going to teach you from one of the other holy books. The Injil, which is the New Testament. And he began to teach them from the New Testament. And then he said, hey, can we get the, the New Testament? As they do the call to worship every day, can we play passages from the Injil, from the New Testament? They begin to play those over the broadcast at the calls to prayer. So people got a wind of what was going on and didn't like it and came to the leaders of the community and came to him and said, this must stop. And here was his argument. He just said, listen, how are husbands treating their wives? Are the children still stealing? Is there still violence? And the leader said, no. And he said, we'll keep playing it. So today, in this village, they're continuing to broadcast the New Testament. God is continuing to work on hearts. Because his word is mighty. His word is powerful. It'll accomplish what he desires. And it'll do more than just make a person a good boy or a good girl. That's not what it's trying to do ultimately. It wants to make you holy and reconciled to God through Christ. And I believe and hope and pray that 
more in that community will come to know the Savior and have their lives transformed by Him. Well, this has um, been a unique sermon to uh, prepare for this week. Um, I got to talk on things I love. If you've heard me, you know I love the biblical imagery and, and these are things I'm just passionate about. Probably, you've probably heard a lot of what I've said before. But today is uh, my last sermon as a pastoral staff member here at Harvest. I've had the great joy and privilege of uh, serving here for, well, we've been a church for a little over seven, but really eight years ago, we were putting together a prayer team to start praying about where God was leading. The next sermon I'll preach will be my first sermon. First sermon in a church with 60 nations gathered in one of the most unique places on earth. I tell you, I'm super excited. And I'm terrified. And I have to keep coming back to faith and trust of God because there's fear. There's days I wake up and go, what? What are we doing? But God has made it clear. God has been so good and so gracious where he leads. There's a passage Margaret and I have been holding on to. I just want to read it to you. In the Gospel of Mark, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he's like, what do I need to do to have eternal life? And Jesus is like, before you can have me, you've got to let go of this earth. If you're holding on to this place too tight, you're never going to trust me. And the rich young ruler won't let go. He holds on to this and he goes, I can't do it. And then his disciples look at Jesus and say, hey, what about us? We've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says this from Mark chapter 10, verse 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. I'd always read this verse, my, my focus was on, hey, when in eternal life, God's going to bless us uh, with everything that we've walked away from, that we've laid aside for his glory and his purposes, God's going to give back to us hundredfold. This passage, it says now. God's going to bless us Now. Sure he will, nature come to It's now as you walk away. I don't look at what we're doing as anything special. God's people have done this throughout the ages. Have laid things down, sacrificed for the cause of the gospel. That's what we're called to do. It's just simple obedience. And we're not doing it perfectly and, and we're not doing it to, for pats on the back, but we want to be obedient to what God has called us to. And as we leave, I look and go, yeah, leaving a house. If you live in a place without AC or heat or water that you can, you can drink and electricity that works part of the time and internet that works even less part of the time and with roads that are crazy traffic and you got to watch out for the goats and sheep on. Can we make it? Can we do it? Will we survive? And I'm scared. But God moves me to faith. That he is sufficient. 
He is enough. He's repeatedly shown Margaret and I and our family, this is where he's leading us. We don't have to know everything. We just take a step of faith and walk and trust in him. That's what faith's about. You don't know where everything's going. You just take the next step and you trust Jesus. We've been, uh, as excited as we've been, we've been grieving hard, leaving family. We have wonderful family here, leaving friends. I've been here 21 years now. I'm not originally from Memphis, but I moved here 21 years ago. And I see a lot of pastors leave, and one of the, one of the things that always grieves me when pastors leave is oftentimes they're leaving bitter, hurt, disgruntled, ready to go do something else, leaving for greener pastures, they believe, doing something that that they've got to leave. And I can tell you I leave for none of those reasons. It's been one of the most joyous places to serve in my life. You, the body at Harvest, have been good to me, been good to my family. I have absolutely no complaints. Am I times of spiritual dryness and my times of weakness and my times of being up and down and this church has been faithful and been good and allowed me to be a pastor here I've grown a lot I've learned a lot and I've still got a lot more to learn but boy it's been a great joy to be able to serve here at Harvest um, for these seven plus years and I want you to know I thank you for that I thank you for um, loving me and my family well and allowing me to and my family to be able to pastor here. I moved to Memphis 21 years ago. Spent seven years as a youth pastor. Seven years working full-time in a ministry called Downline. And now seven years here. And uh, when I first moved to Memphis, it was December, well, I was interviewing for a youth pastor job in December of 99. And uh, I pulled in uh, there was a guy interviewing for the junior high job. We were both interviewing at the same time I was interviewing for the youth pastor job. And I remember praying with him in a parking lot at a hotel where I was staying right next to Bennigan's, which is now Nukes in East Memphis. That was the first time I ever met Kenan. And I'm thankful to get to serve with a good friend. It's been good to me and loyal to me. And growing up in ministry together. And I can tell you, when I leave, I know harvest as a pastor. So so faithful to proclaim the gospel. Oh, so faithful to keep the main things, the main things. Word of God, the good news of Jesus. You can find other churches that are smoother, slicker, better put together than harvest. We're not trying to do those things poorly. We just don't want to lose this. Don't want to lose the gospel. He's been a friend. He's been a leader. He's been a pastor to me and my family, and I'm thankful for that. Grateful for being the time I've had at harvest. So I have some tears here.
their tears of grieving and of joy. I grieve to leave a great season. I'm not leaving bitter. I'm leaving going, this is wonderful. And I leave joyous, knowing that God's still going to use harvest. I leave joyous knowing that as I go, harvest is with us. That's a gift that God has provided a church that cheers for us and roots for us and prays for us. So I want you to know, the words thanks to you, harvest, are insufficient. They don't fully grasp what I would love to be able to say. I'm inarticulate when it comes to wanting to express truly what this place has meant to me. But I do say thanks and praise to God for this time. Let me pray. Thank you. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you that you are God. You chose where we were born. You chose the families we were born into, the nation we were born into. And God, by your good hand, you allow our lives to intersect with other people. And by your good hand, you use people and your word to bring us to yourself. I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful that Harvest proclaims boldly the gospel and seeks as best possible to be faithful to your holy word. I'm thankful for the elders who've been patient with me and kind to me, more kind than I deserve, more patient than is right. I'm thankful for the leaders, thankful for the pastoral staff that have been a joy to serve with. I'm thankful for the congregation. Congregation that gathers and is drawn to this church. Not because we're smooth and slick and have it all together, but because we point to the one who is sufficient in Jesus. And we proclaim your word. And Lord, I leave with a great joy and confidence in knowing that that'll be the thing that this church holds most tightly to is the truth of the gospel in your word. So Lord, now as we part ways for a season, it's with great joy, grieving, yet great confidence and great thankfulness. Thankful that you've allowed us to journey and be a part of each other's lives in this season. I say thank you for that. And praise be to God. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.